0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. On Monday, the Christian anti-hunger advocacy organization Bread for the World announced that Eugene Cho would be its next president. Cho is most well-known as the founder of Seattle's Quest Church and also the founder of the nonprofit One Day's Wages. He's also the latest Korean-American Christian male leader to assume a top spot in an evangelical organization. In 2013, Michael O became the global executive director slash CEO of Lausanne. In 2015, Joel Kinn became the president of Westminster Seminary, California. In 2017, Alexander June was elected moderator of the 45th General Assembly for the Presbyterian Church in America, or PCA. Last year, PCA Pastor Walter Kim became the new president of the National Association of Evangelicals. We wanted to explore how and why a number of Korean-American men have been tapped to lead historically white evangelical institutions in the past decade. And what does this say about the changing shape of American evangelicalism? We also wanted to discuss the absence of Korean-American women from these leadership trajectories. Today is Wednesday, March 11th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
1: And I'm Daniel Silliman, the news editor for Christianity Today.
0: All right, Daniel, it is great to have you here. I'm excited to co-host with you. I would love to get a sense of your own gut reaction to some of this news.
1: I'm really interested in what it says about the larger picture. In some ways, it feels like it's been a long time coming that we see more diversity in these top roles. I'm, I'm curious about why it's happening now and what it says about new vision and new leadership and where it might lead. I don't know. What do you think?
0: So I have a number of friends who were raised in Korean Christian households, many of them who are were somehow just not many of whom struggled in in the faith that they were raised. Some of them identify much more as progressive Christians these days. Some of them I don't identify as Christians at all. Many of them just found a lot that they really struggled with and wrestled with in that particular church. So in some ways, these experiences are really interesting to me because these are people who have moved from the churches that they grew up in and kind of joined evangelicalism at large and in many ways succeeded and found success there. And their experiences are very different from my friends. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having this conversation to just kind of knowing what has worked for them. Why have they decided to be part of organizations, again, that are historically white and have been relatively closed off to people that are not white during that time. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. And so I'm really excited that we're going to be having this conversation and getting at hopefully the heart of that. Who's joining us today to talk about this?
1: Guest today is Paul Lim who is professor of church history at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. He specializes in historical theology, looking at the Reformation and post-Reformation England. He's written some fascinating stuff about the Puritan Richard Baxter and also the crisis of Trinitarian theology in early modern England. But I especially wanted to have Paul today because he has thought a lot about evangelicalism in a global context and how that global context impacts the trajectory of evangelical theology and church practices and and some of those larger changes that we're looking at. So welcome, Paul.
2: Glad to be on the show.
0: So how is everything? I heard that you guys don't have classes right now?
2: Yeah, because of the coronavirus matters that are perturbing all of us globally. But here, I think we've had a case, so we're canceling classes for the rest of the week, and uh, we're doing non-in-person. So a uh, Zoom or Skype, I guess, if I can figure that out, we'll use those methods for just a good old method of uploading our lecture notes to our educational software, Brightspace. So things are, and also we had a tornado strike, but thanks to the generosity of so many people in Nashville, I think the great, great works of recovery and restoration are on the way right now.
0: Wow. Well, we definitely need to
1: be praying for your state. It sounds like it's been quite the week.
2: Yeah, it has been, yeah. Thanks for your concerns and prayers.
1: I wanted to start by asking, from your perspective, Paul, what is the relationship between Korean evangelicals and the evangelical identity? Is that a comfortable fit? How do you feel about the term evangelical?
2: Since you're asking me personally, I think I would probably regard myself more as a progressive evangelical, but I do think that because of the term evangelical has been, I mean, the term evangelio right, comes from the the word good news, and also, as my own studies have indicated, the word evangelical was used to describe those who were seeking to reform the church in the late medieval context, and also describing the global spread of Orthodox Christianity in the last two, three centuries, and many of them would own the label evangelical, though not necessarily according to the American kind of dictates and tastes, although the two are inexorably connected together. Yeah, I think for some Korean Christians, the word evangelical would be an accurate and comfortable fit. For others, I don't think it will be. Although, to be fair, the names that you mentioned, Morgan, earlier, Michael Ojo, Kim, Alex, John, and Walter Kim, I think all of them would use the word evangelical, although with some qualifications and improvisers as well. And I think perhaps, especially Alex, John.
0: So... I had the privilege of editing a piece last year that was specifically looking at the beginning of Korean American adoption in this country. And what I learned as the editor of this piece is that many white evangelicals first encountered the Korean community through adoption that began in the wake of the Korean War. And I'm really curious, Paul. How did this initial introduction kind of affect the relationship and how has it played out to this
2: day? Shout out to a very, very fine scholar, Helen Kim at Emory University. She's done real good work on the sort of 1950, post-1950s relationship between America and Korea, especially politics of religion and adoption, and also, you know, World Vision, which is now sort of a, a, a behemoth of global aid organizations that started out as a way to help the line orphans of South Korea. I do think that the relationship was kind of it goes back further than that with the history of foreign missions from the US to Korea. I do think that one of the positive upshots of that is introduction of a particular kind of Christianity, which is Protestant and Reformed and Reformed slash Presbyterian. So Methodists certainly had a big role to play in it. And the negative upshot of that is that it started sort of a imperial slash neo-colonial kind of relationality between American Christianity and Korean Christianity. And also, I happen to live in Nashville, which means that when I, I go to church where there are some kids who look like me, and many of them are adopted. And so I think it does raise some really interesting questions about The theology of adoption and the practice thereof and how it, unfortunately, in some ways, if not done well, creates a sort of a master-servant narrative and modality that I don't think is that helpful in our true gospel-centered human flourishing.
0: Yeah, I think Daniel and I have talked about how we actually have a bigger piece about World Vision that we'll talk about a little bit later and about the history of it with regards to its relationship in Korea. I also just wanted to shout out that I will put a link in our show notes to the piece about Korean American adoption and it was written by Soojin Chung who wrote a really great, fascinating piece about all of this. I just had one more question about the adoption situation. I'm curious, do you think that that kind of changed how white evangelicals saw Asian Americans overall, but particularly Korean Americans?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. I think that's one way of looking at it, right, is these are the individuals that needed rescue from their homeland. And so I think then it does give you a sense of, of being a benefactor or kinsman, redeemer, or something like that, that I think, again, I had a graduate student, who, Martin, who's a pastor of a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, PCA Church, committed to racial reconciliation. He adopted a couple of African-American children. He hadn't realized the extent to which there is a sort of white messiah complex would play a role in the way that he would interact with people until he adopted these two children. And I think, you know, not that he was going to undo the adoption, but he said, you know, it made him realize about the darker recesses of his own heart that you're not even aware of. So I think if you think about the totality of the individuals who have adopted and who are not as thoughtful or conscientious as Drew Martin, then it it does present a slice of perspective or attitude towards some people that you may unwittingly think that are inferior to you or they're indebted to you because we brought the gospel to you and so on. So I think the whole language of adoption, there's a very fine movie called Susan Brink's Arirang. And it's about a woman who was adopted to Sweden, which is another very, very popular country for early adoptions out of South Korea. And it is her story. And I think, you know, there is a lot of these kind of works that are done by a lot of Korean NGOs and Korean American NGOs, including many churches, to really kind of bring healing and comfort and solace to those who, in their lifelong kind of journey in adoption, may have forgotten their mother tongue, forgotten their birth parents and language and so on. And I think it does raise a lot of interesting questions about their identity and also religious identity, not only ethnic and cultural identity
1: can you tell us can you tell us more about korean american churches what are what are maybe some hallmarks of korean american churches? what kind of theology do they tend to teach what are their what are their strengths and maybe what are their blind spots
2: by and large, most korean American churches tended to be more orthodox in their theology, politically both conservative and and progressive, right I think On matters about immigration, obviously, they tended to be much more open-minded, progressive on that. With regard to other matters, I think more holistically kind of construing the whole issue of social justice, I don't think they were as forward-looking on that. And also, because of their adoption of a lot of conservative evangelical theology, their place of women in the church has often been relegated to pastors' wives or just deaconesses or they're much more relegated to life in the kitchen or dining halls rather than behind the pulpit. And I don't think it's just endemic to Korean American Christianity. I think a lot of conservative Christianity, whether white or Hispanic or black or Asian, I think would have that kind of tendency to, and I think with the uh, commitment to biblical infallibility or even inerrancy, and that's how, that's the shibboleth that would often trying to put women in their place. And I think that has been one of those negative upshots within the Korean church, which is conservative culturally to begin with. Also, the other, the other aspect that I think, positive aspect that must be mentioned is that they were really, really focused on evangelism, just the hospitality ministry, and also really big on campus ministry. So of these individuals that you we, we mentioned Morgan earlier, I think a lot of them were involved in campus ministries or thinking to know Jesus much more definitively through their college work and life. So I think that's important to recognize that too.
0: This may be an overgeneralization, but when I think of Korean churches, I also think of Presbyterianism being really big. I just would like to kind of understand how this all fits together. So from what I understand, the majority of Korean Americans that you're going to meet in the States are going to have come over to the U.S. after 1965 when the U.S. changed its immigration laws. And the two big Presbyterian denominations today are the PCA and the PCUSA. Are Korean American churches part of those denominations? Do they have their own denominations? Because actually those, the PCA and the PCUSA, both started after 1965.
2: So Yes, there are a lot of Korean-Americans in both PCUSA and PCA, as well as in their sort of cognate or sister denominations. So I have had somewhat of an interesting kind of a journey, my own kind of life. So I became a Christian as a junior at Yale, having not really grown up in a church that much prior to that. And then I was really involved with the campus ministry, and I ended up going to a conservative seminary for my MDiv degree. And then I went to Princeton Seminary for my THM degree. And I realized that the two sides were really uh, at a loggerhead. They really didn't like each other. There was a lot of mischaracterization or misrepresentation and characterizing of the other, which was also true among the larger context of you know PCA and PCUSA. It seems that unfortunately many Korean Americans also fell in line with that particular pernicious tendency of not speaking well of our neighbor, but just trying to. And I think that the conservatives and the liberals are equally at fault. uh, Having been on both sides, and then I finished my degree in English and taught at Gordon Conwell for five years, and then the last fourteen years I've been at Vanderbilt Community School. So. Two very different schools, one evangelical, the other definitely not that. In a very kind of a similar way, I think there is a, a sort of a downplaying of the meritworthiness of the other side. I mean, that's true in our extremely polarized context, too. So Korean-Americans, I think there is an increasing number of people who are trying to do a little bit better. And I think, you know, I, for one, have been trying to get the other side to listen to the the, the opposite. Uh, because of my experience. And I do think that there is much to learn from the other side. If if I'm a PCA person, I have to recognize that my PCA sisters and brothers have much to teach me. And if I'm in a PCUSA, then I should also acknowledge that my sisters and brothers in the PCA might have something to teach me as well. That acknowledgement of epistemic humility is not seen either among whites or Asians or other ethnicities and races, it seems to me, because we're so locked into the way we lock ourselves up into our echo chambers, It's not just endemic to one particular race. But I think overall, there are more PCA. No, there are things for PCUSA pastors, but they just aren't getting a lot of spotlight. And I don't know why. I, I don't know why white evangelicals are you know doing that. Are they more racially aware? I'm not sure about that either. Is there mere opportunism? I wouldn't go so far to say that, but maybe a bit of a mixture. I'm not sure. Because I think one of the questions that but we have to ask, this, what's going on? I mean, why all these men? And as you put it well, why not women? And so we can continue to talk about that as we go through our program.
0: For these Korean churches that were started by immigrants when they came over here, did those tend to affiliate with one of these major Presbyterian denominations or did they remain affiliated with Korean Presbyterian denominations?
2: Yeah, so I think there is a KPCA Korean Presbyterian Church in America, which ironically is much closer to USA. and then KAPC, Korean American Presbyterian Church, is much more closely aligned with PCA. And so that meant that if you are in KAPC or PCA, you would go to Reformed Theological Seminary, or Creme de la Creme will go to Westminster Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is an E3 Church Seminary, but if you're from the Chicagoland area, you went there because it was, again, very similar. Region college would be a bit of a stretch, but that was fine because Jack Packer was there for a long, long time. But if you're a PCUSA person or KPCA person, then the school to go to would be Princeton Theological Seminary. And then it kind of puts you in a sort of a pathway, right? I mean, it's not, again, it's not ethnicity specific. I think if you if you grew up in a UMC church, you're if you're thinking about going getting a divinity degree or a seminary degree, you're more likely to go to Duke or Emory or... I don't know. You know, uh, Vanderbilt used to be a Methodist school, but it's not. So, but you could have, yeah, and Garrett uh, maybe, and there are these other schools in that are, but if you're a more conservative Methodist, then you might go to Asbury. But, you know, you kind of have to fall in line in terms of how you are envisioning your ecclesial career or serving God and your institutional affiliation. So that's how it kind of shook up for many Korean-Americans. It's not that, so they came and started church. I don't think many of them were aware of. I mean, look, first of all, there was a language barrier, right, if you come in here in 1966 as a, as a recent graduate of a seminar in Korea, you're not gonna know the language that well. Some of them who wanted to be more American or become more more assimilated, then you would join the PCA or PCUSA. I mean, whenever they were founded, and then that's how you kind of did your thing. But for others, they just said, okay, I'm going to work within my own existing network from Korea. And so a lot of bigger cities such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. area, they had their own kind of cadre of Korean-American pastors and they pastors who were Korean language specific. And then they kind of immersed themselves in KAPC or KPCA. But then what happened is that with the next generation, all of these men, the guys that you mentioned, Michael Ojo, Kim, Alex, John, Walter King, also Julius Kim, who's the newly elected president of the Gospel Coalition, they all, they were what you would call a second generation or, yeah, I guess a second generation past. They, because of their language, not that comfortable enjoying the Korean, denomination that had K in it, right? K-A-P-C or K-P-C-A, so then you're, Approach to seek coordination or ecclesial kind of fellowship and flourishing within the majoritarian context, whether it's PCUSA or PCA or CRC and things like that, or four C's for that matter.
0: Yeah, that's actually something that I've been interested in because, in my experience, a lot of the. Children of immigrants end up being raised in churches where their parents' first languages are spoken. And then it seems like the second generation often ends up moving into a majority white space or leaving the church altogether. I didn't know, though, if the Korean community was any different and if there was any type of expectation that Korean-American Christians who were born in the U.S. would stay involved in the Korean church.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about generational context, currently I go to a church here in Nashville, which is 99% white, right? It's not a Korean church by any stretch of the imagination. It's a fine church, very fine church. I I think about my own kind of um, racialized identity almost every day of my life. But, you know, if I were in a Korean church, then at least one day of the week, I wouldn't think that much about my own racialized identity. And I think there was an expectation among many. I was, uh, I just started doing research on a, an ethnographic research of a church in Los Angeles uh, called Yongnak Church. It's a Presbyterian church, but a lot of Presbyterian churches don't use the word Presbyterian because once you get in there, you will know. Or if you're a Korean church, then you don't need to be a Presbyterian, right? So, you know, so anyway, uh, and they, they had a very, they, they have been around for 47 years and for about 42 years of its existence, they had an a English-speaking ministry. Recently, they went, the English-speaking congregation left to form its own. But there was only very recent. So there is an expectation that the next generation, and many of them are monoracial in terms of who who they ended up marrying. But there's also biracial couples that I saw there too. That they are trying to carry the torch onto the next generation, right? And they have a you know mortgage to pay and uh, elderly and aging parents to take care of, and it's harder to do that when you're in two different congregations, right? So I do think that. It may not be an explicitly stated expectation, but it is very much of an expectation that is there. I think for many of the elderly Korean Americans, English still might be a formidable means for them to fully kind of communicate and feel at home. So, so I do think that there's kind of different typologies of ecclesial kind of endeavors among Korean Americans. Yeah. So I had they retired and went back to Korea when I moved here in 2006 in Nashville, my parents were with us a little bit, but no, they left. My brother and sister ended up going back to Korea. So I ended up being here by myself. Although my sister recently came back to Tacoma, Washington, but that's a different narrative all together. But yeah, I think there is, there would be that expectation somewhat. I mean, you know, I go to this church, white Presbyterian church, PCA church, and I see multi-generations worshiping together. And I, you know, that's, Again, I think, I don't know, if you're in a bigger city, maybe you don't see that, but Nashville is a mid-sized city with lots of families that are choosing to stay within this area in order for them to be closer to grandparents and parents, and I think there's a lot more in common between Southern white and Koreans and Chinese.
0: When I was doing some research for this piece, I was looking at some of these different men that we've talked about. I was looking at their CVs and noticed that many of them have undergrad or grad degrees from Harvard and UPenn and Princeton. I just was wondering, what type of access and influence would you say that their participation in these institutions has offered them, specifically, again, with regards to this larger evangelical context?
2: When I was in England for my graduate school program, I was watching this British comedy show, and it was with a group of Indian comedians, so they would be called Asians over there. And one comedian said, you know, he actually felt as if you had to do twice as well as the other white British comedians, because if you do a little bit better, than they will ha- hail you as the messiah or the funniest man around. And if you do one just a little bit worse, then they'll kind of, you know, basically throw mud at you and say you're like the worst comedian ever. I think for many racialized minority persons who are seeking to kind of advance or advance in their own careers or callings, it seems that it's not that that's how you do it, but I think they've had to get the kind of extra validation in order for them to be recognized as someone that may be worthy of consideration. So, you know what, to be honest with you, I get really excited when I see Asian American guys or women who don't have, you know, these Ivy League degrees and yet they're doing well. I get more more excited about that. Like, oh, so I think that too has changed. Although I think because of the immigrant experience, I certainly being one of them have been really encouraged and, and not forced, but I'm strongly encouraged by parents to see kind of academic excellence as a way out of poverty or way into mainstreaming oneself. However, they're lively unaware of how, you know, kind of fraught that'll be. But yeah, I think that that was kind of put forward as the sort of uh, ideal of an American dream.
0: So I have kind of two different experiences. I was saying at the beginning that I have a number of friends whose parents were actually in ministry in the Korean church. But I would say one of the most influential Korean Americans in my life has actually been the person who was my pastor at the end of high school and is, who is still my parents' pastor. I really remember him telling the story about being in med school and deciding that God had called him to drop out of med school and to pursue ministry, and how much that fractured his relationship with his parents when he decided to make that decision. In your experience, would you say that for the Korean American community, deciding to per- pursue ministry is something that as, is seen as noble or well-regarded, or if that is seen as somehow kind of a betrayal of the sacrifices that your parents made when they came to the U.S.?
2: Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> so is that pastor in New Jersey?
0: No, this pastor is oh. in the Bay Area. He's from SoCal. Oh, Bay in the Bay. Area.
2: So yeah, that's, uh, that's not an isolated incident, I know. <laughs> so I was supposed to go to law school. And when I told my parents that I was thinking about going to seminary, my mom who was a very pious Christian telling me that, you know, maybe your younger brother should do that. She implying that you, know, you have great credentials and you can make something of yourself in the world. So I do think that, you know, when I was at in, in Philadelphia serving at this larger Korean Presbyterian church, KACC church, many of the elders' children were going to seminaries and many, some of them, not all, were disappointed that they were not going to med school or law school or or for taking a finance degree and finance career. And so I think it's a little bit of both. And then they quickly adapt to the reality that they're finding themselves inevitably and really kind of celebrate the fact that they're sons and daughters are in seminary and following god in that particular pathway i also think that what is pretty dangerous about korean Korean ecclesiology or korean american theology is that there's a very stark contrast between the world and the church right you can only serve god or follow god you're following god more dedicatedly or passionately if you're in ministry or if you're a missionary then you're really kind of and i think that's also true in a lot of evangelical churches so The sort of theology of work, theology of vocation, if it's not well developed, then you're basically going to think that if I work at, I don't know, Kroger or Target or Amazon or Apple, then I'm not really serving God. But if I work for Wheaton College or, I don't know, Wheaton Bible Church or whatever, then I'm really serving God. And if I'm a missionary with, I don't know, evangelical church, then I'm really crushing it as a servant of God. And I think that that exists. Uh, and I, I think a lot, there is a very forced membrane of uh, thinking about these matters between the white American church and the Korean American church.
1: Yeah, I wonder if we, th- if we, as we try and think about this larger change that we see in American evangelicalism with this new Korean American leadership, do you think this is a sign that even American evangelicalism is becoming more globally minded, more diverse, or or is something else going on here? What do you make of it?
2: Yeah, I do think that evangelicalism has been more diverse than the leadership and the changes that are occurring now. And so it is sort of a catch-up game, right? I think evangelicals have always been about two decades behind reality when, you know, scholarly-wise, I think a lot of evangelical biblical scholarship would be in a situation of mimicry of what others have done in the old progressive settings, and two decades later you adopt that. So I think evangelicals, I think, I think there has been kind of deep awareness of, I mean, evangelicalism has been more diverse. But at the same time, I think people such as Michael O, Joel Kim, Alex Young, Walter Kim, and Julius Kim, during are in their early to mid-50s, right? Maybe not even 50 yet. So they were not in that sort of prime spot to be tapped as leaders. And also there is a sort of an evangelical transition point, American evangelical transition points, right? So whether it is from Billy to Franklin or, you know what I'm saying? And then the Lausanne or from Doug Bursall to Michael O. And by the way, um, these are, with the exception of Walter Kim, I know these folks pretty well. They would be pretty good friends of mine. So I think it's watching their journey and hearing about them and Eugene Cho as well. Eugene and I used to play basketball together at Princeton Seminary, and he's a very, very good, good speaker. And so I think personally, I'm super excited that they're doing well, but then sometimes I do think, and I kind of differentiate Eugene from Michael and Joel and Alex and Walter and Julius because mm-hmm. what is that organization? Bread, um, yeah, Bread for the World. That's not an evangelical organization, is it? Yeah, it's more mainline, right? So, I mean, so that's whatever it may mean. So within evangelical and mainline context, there are these emergence of Korean American men. I think they were, so, and I'm right there in the age group, I think late 40s, mid to late 40s, to early 50s, mid 50s, that's when you really kind of blossom and come to your own, right? Then you're sort of ready to assume positions of prominence and take on the mantle. And I think it's because that they have self-consciously left the Korean church that there weren't anything there for them. And I think it is highly unlikely that they will go seek out Lead serve sort in of leadership positions within a black church or a Hispanic church. I know of only maybe one or two Asian American pastors who are serving in a predominantly racialized minority context, non-Asian racial minority context. So I think for many of us, including me, I think the way of acculturation for us was if you make it in America, which is just code word for making it in white America or majority cult. And so that's what you are implicitly or explicitly kind of buying into or believing and espousing. I think that's what you're seeing. and It's, again, neither good or bad. I mean, it's mostly good, I guess, but I hope that they become a little bit more self-critical about the, the cultures, the ecosystems where they are in terms of, especially now, I think, you know, so fraught to see kind of evangelical means. In my circles, many of my progressive friends would think that if you use the word evangelical, you must have voted for Donald Trump. I don't think that's the, I mean, I'm talking to a group of people at like Christianity Today and Mark Ali and that, You know that's not true. You, you know that's definitely not true. And then you wonder, where are these people coming from? And I think I'm at a church where I can see both. I can see I'm teaching a great class right now with Dr. Brandy Keller from Lipscomb University about following Jesus in the political sphere today. Most of the people who have been in, in it's a blended class. Most of the people who have been in, in her class are usually... 35 and younger and more progressive in their politics and maybe even theology too. The people who had been in my class, average age is probably 60 and plus, and politically much more on the conservative end of things. So, and I think we've had a very couple of incidents where it was really chart about how we think about capital punishment, how we think about, you know, poverty and racial justice, and these things are really kind of fraught matters. And I think it is. As a sort of progressive evangelical, I'm excited to see that at a PCA church, there's a safe space created for people who differ on these matters, and not only along party lines, but also generational lines. And I think you you would see that in a Korean church more if these leaders were in the Korean church. But again, yeah, I think that's that's really a great thing that evangelicalism is now recognizing that these are leaders who are, I guess, global in their outlook. And also just excellent in, in who they are and what they do, whose racialized identity. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to them about how they see the racialized identity or if that's even a thing. For some, it's not a thing. And they would actually be more willing, more desirous of downplaying it. And for others like Alex John, she would be leading with that. And Eugene Cho as well, I think. And so I would tend to think that the more conservative your soteriology and Christology is, then the more likely that you would want to talk about blending in with the... Because you can't just be talking about race every moment of your corporate life or professional journey. That would get everyone around you, including you, very tired. But how do you then talk about race and grace in a way that is meaningful and productive and generative? I think is the... And I love to see these, these men do that.
1: This episode is brought to you by the new book, I Am a Leader, When women discover the joy of Their Calling, by Angie Ward. When I was in college, God called me to vocational ministry in the form of youth
2: ministry, and then uh, through that began to kind of realize and recognize my leadership gifts. And so then this book is really an outworking of my own journey, just sharing my
1: own story and the book I wished I had when I was starting out in ministry and at various seasons
2: of life and, and stages of my journey along the way about um, what is calling and what's that look like lived out. and. A lot of the women I talk to, it's, it's like they have this, this is, this is who, who I'm supposed to be or this is where I'm supposed to be. There's this
1: at homeness almost with it. and, and whether that's um, working with
2: foster kids, whether that's uh, working out in the business marketplace and it's conversations they're able to have with people, and then they realize like, I, I can do this in the way in a way that nobody else can.
1: Go to IamALeaderBook.com to learn more. See Angie's video read an excerpt and buy the book
0: so i want to maybe push back a little bit on this conversation so i'm a mixed race asian american person and my peer group has had a number of conversations wrestling with the idea of model minorities sometimes i can feel very cynically about these things so One way I think that you could look at about seeing all these Korean American leaders is you could say, wow, they're coming from top flight institutions. Many of them have two or three degrees. Many of them are Ivy League educated in some way. In some ways, they're making the church, the denominations look great. They're paying to go to these traditionally historically white institutions. They're accrediting themselves in these places. And we as a denomination or a historically white organization, we don't have to change that much in order to actually hire these. Whereas, you know, if you if you look at leadership positions or historically white evangelical institutions and you look for leaders who are African-American, for instance, or Hispanic groups that have been historically shut out of those institutions and kept out, you see very little progress in those areas. Very few concessions from those institutions to try to bring in people who aren't that. Whereas it seems like in many ways, Korean-Americans may have not necessarily encountered some of the same hurdles. And so some organizations may be, be able to kind of almost pat themselves on the back of like, oh, we did something diverse, but they didn't actually have to change anything fundamentally in the institution to, quote unquote, accommodate that diversity. That's my struggle.
2: I <laughs> agree with you. No, I, I think, but can I ask you more then? So what did you say about you earlier Europe? By the way, I, I, I didn't quite get that.
0: So I'm multiracial Asian American. So my mother is Caucasian and my dad is Chinese and Hawaiian.
2: Oh, OK. I see. I see. OK. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I, I would completely agree with you. I mean, so a lot of minority myths. I mean, is that not true in the progressive circles? I, I think it's probably very similar. Do Asian-Americans have greater? I mean, so I think you have to also look at the, so maybe, I mean, this is going back to Daniel's question earlier. Are evangelical, white evangelical institutions, are they trying to play catch up and say, oh, shoot, we better do something about this thing called race? Oh, well, there is a Chinese guy a Korean guy. Let's hire him. Because then we can say, well, we got one of them here. And I'm being cynical, but yeah, I think that's part of it. And it doesn't require a lot of too much gerrymandering of our own kind of ideology in order to adopt you, because you're going to be far more adaptable to what we feel like you. Like, this is the new party line. And as a recently arrived American... I think there is a lot more, and I think especially for, it is interesting, I don't know if you know this guy named Frank Yamada, who was the president of Western Seabury, Seabury Western Seminary, which now closed, and then maybe they still exist only in online formats, I'm not sure. He's the president or executive director of the ATS Association of Theological Schools. He's what you call Sansei, right? Third so Generation ge- American guy, and so I think for Japanese Americans, their experience, perhaps because of the internment experience, their attitude toward white evangelicals is a little more different, right? And I think similar stuff with Chinese Americans too. Again, I think I would also say have a shout back and push back on my progressive sisters and brothers and say, well, what about? Because I think more of the progressives are willing to hire I think African Americans than Hispanic because they are thinking, look, we're ready to kind of dismantle our status quo in some ways, not really, but. You know, we're going to be more capacious and accept them. So why don't we have uh, black leaders and uh, Latinx leaders? And and I think, again, these are all great things. I mean, I, I sometimes, and every time I, I hear about minority this and minority that, I never really hear Asian Americans, including like Hmongs and, you know what I mean? Like Laotia, I mean, they're in some ways, socioeconomically, equally as bad off as other, but they're never included because they happen to be from you know, Southeast Asia, right? So, so I do think that that is also playing into, and it, it, it produces that kind of typology of race and racialized identities in America that is not necessarily all that helpful, right? Because if i am never talked about it as a person who's minoritized, but whose daily experience is that of not, a, not of a white majority person, I'm speaking of many teenagers, right? I mean, Asian Americans who are born here, and they don't know the language of their grandparents or even parents, and yet they're not white, right, right? And try as you might. You're not going to be totally integrated, whatever integration is, whether that's a desirable thing or a terrible thing. We don't have to decide that today. I think maybe a little bit of both, but... Morgan, you can see that I'm very passionate about that. Uh, I, I, I want to stop myself because there are other questions that we should try to get through. But I do think that for evangelicals, I think I, I completely agree with you. I do have plenty of cynicism about that. But also at the same time, you know, when, when there is an enough number, like for example, Fuller Theological Seminary has recently appointed Amos Young to be the dean of the School of Theology and School of uh, Intercultural Studies. And he's a great, great guy to do it. He's Malaysian-Chinese, right? Is a dear, dear friend? And I think is fuller, do I think? Yeah, I think so. I think there is, you know, the percentage of Asian, Asian-American students at Fuller is staggeringly high. So uh, I'm glad that they made the right right appointment in that. So, yeah, so uh, you can see the examples multiply. Just,
0: just my other concern is I just don't know necessarily if. When I've seen historically white companies or institutions have larger numbers of Asian Americans, which is something that I obviously celebrate and think is a good thing, if that often means that there will also be increased opportunities for African Americans or Latinos. I'm thinking of tech companies probably as like my biggest example where there's plenty of Asian Americans there. You know, I'm hopeful in these instances that these men who are going to be leading these organizations are going to be cognizant and excited about bringing in voices that are not just... Asian American or white. But I'm curious if you think that there is a positive correlation between those two things, or if not, where some of those hiccups or struggles have been.
2: I'm assuming that you probably have heard of Seung Chan Ra at North Park University. He's a a very, very good, good friend. And so, you know, basically what I have created or ended up doing is creating this kind of fraternity with these brothers who are serving in these other contexts who are trying to do the right thing, trying to make a living and trying to of Jesus, and sunshine has been really helpful in my greater awareness of how the sort of racial uplift for one group has to have a positive ripple effect onto the others, though in reality, it often does not. I think, you know, I was having uh, a dinner with Alice John recently, uh, in fact, two weekends ago, and we're talking about, you know, the whole Uncle Chang kind of uh, dilemma, right? You know, Uncle Tom and Uncle Chang. So it's just kind of, am I just serving this white man that just... I, I, I talk white and I, I dress white and I, I I don't look white, but in my dictions and mannerisms and cultural kind of morals, am I basically white or am I a banana? And I think there's, if you if you are just glad that you got a job in a white you know institution as a leader, and then you don't think about the others and their legacy, then that's a waste of a spot. I think you should really think about those who will come after you and those who are with you right now and how to make this, how to make it a truly a flourishing context for other people whose stories have not been told and heard, whose presence has not been felt or acknowledged. I think they have to be much more. And look, if you're going to be no different from a white predecessor, then what good are you? And again, well, maybe maybe we're placing too much of a burden on these Asian American guys who just got there. They may be saying, Paul, dude, like, give me a break, man. I just got here. <laughs> leave me alone. I got to figure this stuff out because I don't want to get fired, right? You don't want to get because you don't want to be too much of a mad work, then you, you you lose your position, right? You know, in the next term, your board of directors, all almost all of them are white, aren't going to renew your term. Then that's the end of it, right? And I, I think it is really, you know, then then again, you you think about the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, ministered for only three years. Three year ministry doesn't seem like a long time, and yet he has profoundly shape the course of human history and how we think about God and and talk about salvation and experience God yeah but I that, that wouldn't be my genuine pushback and and, uh, uh, and and an encouragement actually to Michael and Joel and and Walter and Julius they're all you know whether it is NAE National Association of Evangelicals for Walter Kim and Julius Kim would be the Gospel Coalition Joel Kim would be Westminster Seminary and Michael will be Lausanne yeah these are conservative white institutions. And whatever the, the search committee or the headhunting firm or the board of directors, board of trust saw in you, I hope that they would also have that kind of greater willingness to share the platform. And I think it is, listen, I think it's a hugely political position and, and for Eugene Cho as well. I mean, I think, and I don't want to assume that it'll be easier just because Eugene is in a mainline context. Perhaps so a little bit, I'm not sure of. Uh, But I do think that they have to see it as part of their mandate, part of the mandate that is given by the good Lord. I mean, I'm not equating diversity with gospel, but I also do think that the gospel, if practiced right and embodied rightly, would be much more speaking of my neighbors who think differently from me, look differently from me, dress differently from me, eat differently from me. So there is a sort of a diversity kind of DNA that is part of the gospel.
1: So I wanted to ask. I think we've we've all seen. I've certainly seen white institutions make this kind of hire and then spend a lot of time congratulating themselves. That's definitely a thing that we see in general. And I wonder as you look at these men and their, you know, unique experience and perspective that they're bringing, what do you hope white evangelicals and the church writ large can learn from can learn from them and maybe and maybe from Korean American Christians more generally? Like, what, what lessons can the white church learn here?
2: I was just, last two Sunday worship services were, one, most recently was at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, you know, a couple about 3,000 3, members of congregation, predominantly white. It was Sunday before that, I was in uh, Young Knock Church in Los Angeles, which is just bordering Chinatown, and it's an urban church. It's all ethnically Korean, pretty much. Two experiences are very, very different, not just the language, but so many of the, 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 the parishioners at Youngnock have been here a long time, right? 40 years, 45 years. So post 1965, that they'll be 55 years ago, right? So. And yet, they don't really feel that they're American, and they feel like a perpetual kind of a foreigner or stranger, stranger on your own shores kind of thing. So then there is a greater desire to acknowledge that this is not my home. And one of my favorite heroes of the Christian faith uh, is a refugee pastor who was a Frenchman who lived in Geneva for a long time, John Calvin, whose uh, eschatology was fueled by the fact that he too saw himself, and rightly so, as a refugee. As an alien, stranger, an alien passing through this world. So I would say that for many white evangelical, white American evangelicals, I think it is really important for them to actually worship in spaces, uh, go to go to a black church, go to a you know Hispanic church, go to an Asian American church, where you would feel like you're a minority. I mean, you would experience what it means to be a minority, you know, minority person. And if you have never experienced that, you won't know. And I do think that it does give us an opportunity to really let the gospel decenter us from our positions of privilege and power and to experience following Jesus who came as a powerless person, who came as a refugee, who's national sovereignty was not on their own, and, you know, who was a refugee, right? And so I do think that if we, if our Christology is really orthodox and robust, then I think seeing other immigrant churches in our neighborhood and making ourselves available to worship with them and learn from them would be really a great pathway of following Jesus in 21st century context.
0: So I wanted to talk about Korean American Christian women and first give a shout out to Kathy Kong and to Helen Lee who we published some of their articles here in Christianity Today and I believe I read them even before I ended up working here and was extremely encouraged to find Asian American female voices speaking out and sharing how they felt about things and they've both had an impact on my own faith and I'm really appreciative to them Kathy was on the podcast last year and Helen is a good friend They've been awesome, but when I was trying to think of a volume of Korean American Christian female leaders and theologians, at least in the same number as we're seeing with these other men who are doing these, I had trouble find you know coming up with as many. And I'm just curious, would you say that Korean American Christian women are subject to more intense roadblocks or barriers than? white Christian women might struggle? And if so, maybe you could talk about what those would be.
2: Allow me to issue a huge caveat, because since I am not a woman, I cannot speak personally or in any way, shape or form definitively authoritatively about their experience. I have, like you, noticed the poverty of evangelical or just even mainline Korean American women Leaders or thought leaders, and I lament that. I do find, however, scholars such as Ann Joe, who teaches at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Chicago, as well as Grace Gisan Kim, also a very, very fantastic theologian, as two of my favorite authors to read. I learn. So I think if I read authors that I agree with anyway, then I don't seem to learn a lot. It's just kind of confirmational bias. But when I go, like Joe or Kim, I feel that their perspectives coming from a displaced Korean American women's voice really helps me to be reminded of my own marginal status. It's in the margins and to the margins that God calls us in Jesus Christ, that's something that I often forget. And I think that's really, really good. I also think that because of complementarianism, so not ordaining women in the more conservative context has placed, played a role in discouraging them from seeking kind of a positions of service and influence. So I do think that there is a, 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 some kind of correlation between the two. I think, first of all, you got then a, a double hindrance, right? You got the gender uh, block as well as the race race block. So I think it is in some ways, I, I don't know who suffered more and that's not my business. I think it's, uh, but I do think that for Korean American women, it is a Asian American women. I think in that, in their regard, I think the more progressive mainline denominations have been more open to allowing them and inviting them to positions of leadership. I have a, a, a mentor, not a close mentor, but someone I know pretty well, who's an, a leader among first generation Korean American pastors who's now living in Korea, whose daughter, because she wanted to serve God in the sort of ministerial context, pastoral and priestly context. She ended up getting ordained in the Episcopal Church USA because she couldn't be ordained in the PCA, right? So then there is a kind of an outlet that is made that actually would mean that you're losing the would-be leaders from your denominational context because they, in case that they want to be teaching others how to read the Bible or how to think theologically, there are many seminaries where that's not a possibility. I I wouldn't say that they're intentionally misogynistic kind of, you know, punks, but No, but I think they're in their desire to follow scripture according to their hermeneutic. I think they end up doing that. But I think, you know, for women who, for whatever reason, believe that they are called by God to serve God in a pastoral or priestly context, you should allow them to do so. And so I think it does raise some really interesting hermeneutical and theological questions as it bears on the experience of Korean American women. And I, I, I have noticed that there are a lot more Progressive Korean American women who are serving and leading in various contexts, rather than evangelical. And there will be people like Sydney Park, who teaches at Beach Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. And she's a very fine scholar. She's figures such as Sydney Park are few and far between, I would think, unless I'm missing out. There's Bo Karen Lee at Princeton Seminary as well. She's a professor of spirituality, spiritual theology, and she's done a very, very good job. There's also Amy Patricia Lee at Azusa Pacific, I think. And I'm sure I'm forgetting because I've been at I've been at the sort of a mainline interlens and I haven't really hung out a lot with evangelical scholars. But I think they would be the names that I that I can come up with off the top of my head.
0: I'll give one more shout out to Angie Hong, who has also been a source of inspiration. She is a worship leader. Um she is not an academic, but she's currently studying at Duke right now.
2: Thank you. And and you, you know sisters I said much better than me because I'm not If they're in an academic context, then I'm more likely, you know, or at least I've heard of, they're in an ecclesial context. And it's a 99% chance that I have not heard of them. But great to hear that there's Angie Hong out there doing great work for the Lord.
0: She's great. All right, as we wrap this conversation, how would you encourage our listeners to pray for the Korean American church and church leaders?
2: God calls us and shapes us and braces us differently. So I don't want to assume that all Korean Americans have or must have same kind of experience of following Jesus here in North America. But at the same time, I think it is important for us in this Lenten season to be reminded of the fact that Jesus, who hungered and thirsted for us for 40 days and 40 nights, spent time outside of his own homeland as a refugee in Egypt. And also just to know that God incarnate experienced that, that reality of refugee kind of life. So we also ought to really kind of do our very best to not in a paternalistic way, not in a maternalistic way, but also in in, in, in Christ following way, really lift up the lots of the widows and the orphans and the alien. And I think so for current American brothers and sisters, it's important for us to know that This is not our home. We seek justice uh, to the best of our ability and justice and peace and mercy. But also we seek the city that is yet to come. So I think we live in that tension. I don't know whether that's a prayer request or just a closing remark, but (laughs) there you have it.
0: Well, thank you so much for offering your wisdom and insight into our conversation, Paul. People who have feedback can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on Twitter. We are at CT Podcasts. I'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by people who support and subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And Daniel, you and I were having a conversation about how the April cover story is actually kind of germane to this conversation that we're having. What's it about?
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating piece by Torian David Schwartz about World Vision's forgotten founder. And as many people know, World Vision had a major presence in Korea and in its early years and even still today. But David's looked at some of the forgotten, some of the dropped out of the story people, South Koreans, who were um, major players in the development of this history. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating bit of history. It's really well written and people should check it out. It's a cover story for the April issue.
0: All right. So if that interests you, definitely interests me. It is part of our April issue and you can access that by becoming a subscriber. So that is possible by going to orderct.com slash podcasts, orderct.com slash podcasts. Our April issue will be going live next week online. If you subscribe now i think you can still look at the magazine for april but basically this week is probably your cutoff to getting the april issue so hopefully you can get that At the very least though you'll be able to read it online and i think it'll have a lot of food for thought in terms of the conversation today all right now it's the time of the show that we call precious moments we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy or made them happy daniel go ahead
1: When I'm not the news editor at Christian today, I'm also a historian, and I'm currently writing a book about Richard Nixon. And so I got to spend three days in the Nixon library in the basements. Brought joy by holding some of these historic original documents, including the the yellow legal sheet for the checkers speech, this famous speech where the vice presidential candidate, Richard Nixon, invoked his dog Checkers, and I got to hold the speech and see where he mapped out the political strategy of using his dog to win sympathy. That was fun. That's a historian' precious moment.
0: Did you just kind of love being able to like touch things that a president did that changed American history?
1: I mean, yes. (laughs) Short answer: You pick these things up, and you're like, "This is." A facsimile? This is the original thing. This isn't uh, someone's representation of the thing. This, this, it has vibrancy of history in it. Yeah, it's weird. Do you fun.
0: relate to that, Paul?
2: You know that there's this bumper sticker that says, Lord, help me to be the kind of person that my dog thinks that I am? I don't know if you've seen that. That's a great bumper. So I have a dog named Baxter, right? And, and it was a name given to him by the breeder. So I knew that it was a predestined dog. So it's a multiple, it's a tiny little thing. You know what? I think next to scripture and my wife, my dog has been placed graciously by by the Lord as a sanctifying tool. So I think anytime I look at my dog's back or walk with him, it reminds me of the kind of love that God has for me, continuing moments of joy every time and anytime I am with my canine companion.
0: All right. Remind people where they can find you outside of this podcast, Paul.
2: Where they can find me, if they Google this Paul Lim at Vanderbilt, there's a YouTube video that I did about it two years ago that went kind of a little viral. It's, a, it's in my testimonial video called From Atheist to Christian at Yale. It's got a few views, and it's just, it allows... And I think, you know, similar to this podcast too, I think one of the things that has happened in my life, like Joni, is that video, that talk, testimonial talk I gave a week after I gave a talk at Harvard Divinity School, which I thought was the highlight of my career and this testimonial video I just gave because no one has to do it. But I didn't really think it was a high point of my academic journey, but interesting enough that video has kind of erupted. And and has and so I just have to marvel at God's interest in Providence. What we think is so important may not be that important in the sight of God. I'm not equating God with YouTube, but, but you know, <laughs> uh, it, it is what it is. So. Not equating God with these It's you know funny like that. It's these things that get people contacting me rather than mystery unveiled the crisis of the Trinity in early modern England, right? Just people don't ask me anything about that. <laughs>
1: so.
0: Sorry, guilty. Ne- next, no, it's okay. next podcast.
2: It's okay.
1: Next podcast: Trinitarian Crisis with Paul Lin.
2: <laughs> I did do a podcast. I think White Horse Inn. I think uh, as soon as the book came out. So um, okay, but. That was one podcast. Everything else has been about my life journey or about Korean-American Christianity and Reformation Christianity and so on.
0: All right. My precious moment was the fact that I got to go to our coworker's house. He lives in this beautiful house, cabin, I don't know, majestic even, chateau. I don't know what word to best describe it, in the woods in Colorado and within very reasonable driving distance to a number of the ski resorts that are outside of Denver. And I went with another coworker and we got to go skiing last week, which I am not very good at skiing. But at the same time, once I realized that I really had only gone down two greens before after two days of lessons. I think I did not that bad for days four and five of skiing. Yeah, I'm not going to be ashamed of how I did. There was only a couple traumatic moments and one of them involved accidentally having to go down the moguls, which moguls are extremely hard and completely out of my skill set. Maybe something to look forward to in the next 10 years. I don't know, based on how much I ski. Daniel, where can people find you on social media?
1: I am most prominently on Twitter at Daniel Silliman.
0: All right. People can find me. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Linder. The transcript is made available by Bunmi Ashola. This podcast is available wherever you want to get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. And it's there that we ask you to rate and review the show. That definitely helps our discoverability for the show. We will see you all next week.